0: So far through our study of Acts, we've been taking bite-sized chunks of chapters. Uh, Most of our Sundays we've not even covered uh, a full chapter. And this week we're going to be a little different approach. Uh, We're we're looking at the end of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and the beginning of chapter 11. Um, If last week you remember we ended in verse 31 of chapter 9... And uh, I'll read verse 31 to you. It reminds us where we were at. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so you have this this phenomenal uh, growth of the church that's taking place. And yet this week in our text, um, we see a third major shift in the book of Acts. There's some game changers, if you want to call them that, in the book of Acts. In particular, three um, one is the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit would dwell, believers, would come and live inside of the people of God. It's the biggest event, bar none, in history after the resurrection, that God would come and live inside of, of, of mankind. Uh, the second major game changer is the salvation of Saul. We saw that last week. Uh, I told you it ranks right after the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, that, that, that Saul would be converted and would be used in incredible ways as a missionary, as a writer of Scripture, as an apostle. The third one we see this week, and it's the conversion of Cornelius. And, uh, and here's why this is a huge day in salvation history, uh, in the events of, 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 of Christianity spreading. Um, Jesus had already told his followers in Acts chapter 1, a very familiar passage to us, uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, that uh, his disciples would be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the world. And we've witnessed those first two happen pretty clearly. The church spread in Jerusalem. Uh, God gave us uh, a picture of it spreading to Samaria. Uh, And then he gives us a glimpse of his heart for the nations in the uttermost parts of the world through a a sort of fulfilled in the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember Philip going and and speaking with him. Um, And and he's certainly from somewhere outside of Jerusalem. Uh, and, And he returns home. He's a witness to his people there in Ethiopia. But... Where had the Ethiopian just been? To Jerusalem. And so it it is fulfillment, but he's still connected. He's a foreigner, but he's still connected to the first part of Jesus' promise to be uh, his witnesses in Jerusalem. Well, with Cornelius, we learn, as we will in this text in a moment, that that's absolutely not the case. Cornelius was fully outside of the Jewish nation, uh, culturally nothing in common with, with them. Um, Cornelius's conversion uh, takes place and this is a, a sure shift we see this third phase of Acts 1-8 being fulfilled that the gospel is going to the uttermost parts of the world uh, to the ends of the earth and, uh, and while Cornelius is converted to Christianity there's a second conversion in our text this morning too and it's really the one that we'll more focus upon this morning is Peter's conversion Now, Peter's already a believer. He's already converted to Christianity. He has the Holy Spirit living inside of him, but his thinking needed to be converted. His his attitude and his heart needed to be converted uh, in in a particular area of sanctification. And, um, And he needed to realize the lesson that God taught John when John went and observed the Samaritans with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's this, that the gospel is for everyone without distinction. Uh, The gospel is for everyone without distinction. And that truth is precisely what spans these three chapters. And that's why we're putting them together this morning and covering a big chunk of of scripture. is because we see this play throughout the end of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, and the beginning of chapter 11. It's a continuing theme that we see. The gospel is for everyone without distinction. And I think we would all agree with that. We would all probably say that this morning. Uh, Our heads, we know that to be true. But oftentimes our hearts disagree with what our heads know to be true. Um, Our hearts, even born-again believers, even people that have been Christians for years and years and years, can have deeply embedded prejudice that can lurk in our hearts. And, uh, And the reality of this text, it points out to us the sin that that is. And the potential for discrimination is in each and every human being because of this human flesh that we walk around in. People discriminate against others based on age or appearance or uh, race, or uh, living conditions, or job status. There's any number of reasons that someone would be prejudiced. And we have to understand from the text this morning that it's evil. For any reason, it's evil. It's sin. And it must be repented of. And in fact, it must be continually repented of. Because oftentimes, those things are so deeply ingrained in us, and we're not even aware of it, that they raise their head, even when we think that we've dealt with them. And so this morning, we see this all over this text. And, uh, and, and through our study in Acts, we've seen Satan utilize numerous roadblocks, attempts to, uh, to, 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 to take away from the spread of the gospel. He's used outside persecution a few different times. He's used internal opposition within the church uh, a couple times. He's used enemy penetration into the church, putting people inside the church that were not born again. And this morning we see another potential roadblock to the spread of the gospel, and that's our own hearts. That's what we see this morning in the text. And to be faithful missionaries, which each of us are called to be, based on Acts verse uh, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, we must fight against discrimination and prejudice. And so what is this morning? Even as we jump into this, you may think that this is not a, a problem for you. This is not a weakness for you. This is not somewhere where you would stumble. Let me ask you this morning, what's your knee-jerk reaction when you see a, a same-sex couple in the community or, or someone who's a cross-dresser checking out at the grocery store Or someone who's on the news advocating a political position that you're adamantly opposed to? What's your knee-jerk reaction? Is it in that moment fleshly or is it righteous? Uh, What's your immediate thought when you pass a Muslim woman in the mall wearing her hijab? And your thoughts in that moment, unchecked, what are your initial thoughts? Uh, We're going to see six scenes in the text this morning. And uh, I pray that it brings conviction to each one of our hearts. And And today, if you're like, well, I can tune out, I'm okay here. And probably we need to be listening the most. Um, we all can have these feelings of exclusivism or elitism or discrimination. And this text teaches us that there's no place for that in the life of the believer. Because if there is even a, a bit of that lurking in our hearts, it's a roadblock to the free offer of the gospel to anyone. And certainly we, we don't want to be there. And so the Cornelius conversion story that we're about to study is the longest story in the book of Acts. More words are spent telling his story because of the shift that's happening in Peter, and with the proclamation and spread of the gospel, that we don't need to miss it. And so, uh, if this help, if this is helpful this morning, uh, the outline that I'm walking through is from Tony Marita's commentary. It's helpful for me in understanding how he broke down the text, and so I don't take any credit for the way these scenes are broken down. But six scenes for us this morning as we walk through these almost two full chapters. The first one is this, scene one, uh, we have an introduction to this idea that this conversion that needs to happen for Peter and the other believers in Jerusalem. So read with me starting in verse 32 of chapter 9. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed." And immediately he rose. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The rest of chapter 9 uh, gives us a, re- a reintroduction to Peter. If you remember, Peter's been introduced to us before. He was uh, first brought up, and in, 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 in we saw him last in chapter 8. Uh, he went down to Samaria to affirm that the, the gospel had been received there. The Holy Spirit had indwelled those believers there. And then he shows up again here in chapter 9, and we see the ministry of Peter continue with a couple of miracles. And these miracles are important for us. As we anticipate the spread of the gospel, these miracles uh, teach us a few things. They're important for a few reasons. One, they reinforce uh, that Peter is an apostle. His ministry is authentic, and these miracles accompany him to to prove that. Uh, Additionally, these miracles demonstrate the power of Jesus. Oftentimes, the book of Acts is called the Acts of the Apostles. But Luke has already told us in the beginning of his book that this is really what Jesus continued to do on earth after his ascension. So it's the acts of Jesus uh, through the apostles. And we see that, that, that all over this text, that it's Jesus who's working. It's his uh, work that's taking place. One other thing we note about these miracles in and, and Peter is that they're, they're not an end unto themselves. It's not like the miracle was the reason they went. Uh, the miracle happened, but in both of these miracles... The end result is that people turn to the Lord for salvation. That's the end. Uh, And so, the first miracle that we see shows us Jesus' power over disease. Peter's traveling, as we've already read, he's preaching, he's teaching believers how to live out the gospel. He ends up in a place called Lydda, and there he meets a man named Aeneas who's been paralyzed, bedridden for eight years. Now, can you imagine what this man is dealing with, right? Bedridden at a time when there's no Netflix. So, so no, no Netflix, nothing to watch to occupy his time. There's not even mass publication yet, so probably did not have a stack of books or magazines to read. He's sitting there all day, every day. Now, Jess just walked out of the room, I think, so I can tell you this. Uh, one of my pet peeves is when I'm in bed before she is and I'm warm and cozy and I'm snuggled up there and she decides to come to bed after me and she comes, gets in bed and, and places those ice blocks, <laughs> I mean feet, right up next to mine. It drives me crazy. But I bet this guy, if given the opportunity, would have loved to have a moment like that, to be able to feel again, to be able to use his legs again. He probably remembered those desires and, and, and had desires of walking across the beach again and feeling the sand between his toes. Probably had the desire to, to, to experience a day of, of manual labor again. Something that uh, some of us would say, I don't want any part of that. He'd probably love to work another day, be able to experience that again. And yet, his dreams are about to come true. And, uh, and when, he see, when Peter sees Aeneas, he has this strange but simple greeting Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. You see how simple this statement is. And yet, in it, Peter is magnifying the name of Jesus. In this healing event, it's about Jesus, Jesus Christ. He wants to make it clear that that's who's doing this. You also see, as I mentioned earlier, that this healing is not just about the healing. Verse 35, it says, They turned to the Lord. More than one man needed physical healing. There was a need for spiritual healing for all of these folks that were awaiting and watching this event take place. Let's continue to see the next miracle event. We saw in this one Jesus' power over disease. We see next Jesus' power over death. Look at verse 36. There was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two, man, two men to urge him, uh, urging him, saying, Please come uh, to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord." We see this precious saint in Joppa named Tabitha. She's fallen dead. And Luke tells us exactly what kind of woman she was. She was always doing good works and acts of charity. And she, even in the text, it explains that she had made garments for these widows that she was in fellowship with. What an incredible saint of the Lord! What an incredible epitaph for her tombstone, right? Well, not so fast. The disciples in Joppa. After she passes, they send for Peter, and they're hoping that he might be able to raise her from the dead. And they even had so much confidence that that would be the case, that he could, through the power of Jesus, raise her from the dead. They didn't even bury her, right? They wash her, and they put her in a room upstairs, and they wait for Peter. They're sure that she can be raised to life, and they're not disappointed. God uses Peter here to display Jesus' power, and it's an incredible miracle, and it's very similar to the miracles that we see from Jesus. and, uh, and, and during both of these miracles, what's happening is Luke is setting the stage for us for the next miracle that's about to take place. And Dr. Luke, in writing Acts, has shown us Jesus' power over disease and death. And he's about to show us Jesus' power over discrimination. And it's coming in chapter 10. It's really what most of chapter 10 is about. But you catch a glimpse of it even in the closing of chapter 9. Look at the last verse of chapter 9, verse 43. And he, that's Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days... With one Simon, a tanner. That might seem like a passing comment to you, just the place where he stayed while he was in this place called Joppa, but it's significant. It's there for a reason. There's a transitioning that's already starting to take place in Peter's heart. God's overcoming some of Peter's cultural bias, and we know that even from that verse. Think about what a tanner was, what they did for a living. They were considered perpetually unclean because they, as the Jews believed, uh, because of Jewish law, he dealt with dead animals. It's actually what he did for a living. He took the skins off of animals to make leather. He was a tanner. And so he was perpetually, he was continually unclean according to their ceremonial law. And yet Peter's staying with him in his home. There's something shifting in Peter, there's something changing in his heart. And then uh, and, and that's how Luke wraps up this reintroduction of Peter and shows us again Peter's ministry. And then he moves in chapter 10, he makes another introduction. Still in that first scene, we're meeting the folks in the text. This is the second introduction that Luke makes for us. He introduces Cornelius to us. So look at chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was, uh, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, a bit of background here Caesarea was the Roman substation over Israel. If you've studied any of the Bible, you know the relationship between Israel and Rome. They were not too fond of those Romans and their rule over them. And this was a military town. It was right on the coast, 31 miles north of Joppa. And it's important to realize that the Jews hated Caesarea because of what it stood for, because of who was there ruling over them. And they called Caesarea the daughter of Edom, a place of ungodliness, and Cornelius is the captain of the Roman army, a captain of the Roman army that would have been overruling over the Jews. He would have commanded about a hundred Roman soldiers posted in Caesarea. He would have been paid as much as five times more than an ordinary soldier because of his status and position. And so you get the picture. He's a wealthy, influential soldier empowered by the Roman Empire. And to be sure, to be sure, the Jews would have resented him. They would have hated everything he stood for. Uh, There were even societies among the Jewish people that would have attempted assassinations uh, of, of, of Cornelius if given the chance. And God is about to wreck Peter's heart in a good way. And he's going to use one of the most highly Gentile places with one of the most highly Gentile guys to do it. And you need more than just background on Caesarea, though. Let me give you a little bit of background in understanding this Cornelius guy. Luke makes sure that we know that Cornelius is a devout religious man. Verse 2 says that he feared God. Now a God-fearer for the Jews was a Gentile that obeyed the Ten Commandments and feared God, the God of Israel. Uh, they also balked at the idea of circumcision and, and or the following of Jewish dietary laws. So you yeah, uphold the Ten Commandments, fear God, but I don't care about your other laws, your, your food laws, your circumcision. You can have that. And so for that reason, they were kept at arm's length. The Jews respected them, but sort of as second-class citizens. Um, They're not following the law, and so they kept them at arm's length because of their sinful practices. Luke makes sure to note that Cornelius was a man of piety. Not only was he a God-fearer, verse 2 tells us that he gave alms to the poor, and he prayed a lot. And so Cornelius had a lot going for him. But we must not miss that though Cornelius had a lot going for him, he was a religious man, but he was not a regenerate man. He was a religious man, but he was not born again. He'd never been redeemed by Jesus. He'd never given his life to Christ. He was sort of like Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus? He comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, kind of secretively. He's a pious man. He wanted to honor the Lord. And John 3, 16, or actually Jesus' words to Nicodemus, though Nicodemus was a, a pious, respected man, Jesus told him he must be born again doesn't matter. Your, your rule following, your rule keeping, it's not going to save you. You have to be born again. You have to be converted. Even a good man must be radically saved by faith and repentance. And, uh, and that's what we see here with Cornelius. And so when we think about the gospel, even as we preach about the gospel over and over and over, the gospel isn't just for lost people out there. What we see with Cornelius is that the, the gospel's for lost people that may be in here thinking that they're saved people. The gospel is also for saved people that are walking with the Lord. In other words, you don't graduate from the gospel. It has bearing on every part of our life. We never move beyond it. So that's the end of scene one. We've met Peter. We've met Cornelius. Scene two. We see a couple visions. A couple visions take place. Look at verse three. About the ninth hour of the day, he, that's Cornelius, saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Now Cornelius receives this vision wherein he's told that he should go and meet Peter. Uh, He's he's not a Christian at this time, nor does he become a Christian through this vision. Uh, But the Lord is speaking to him through this vision. He's directing him to someone who can share the gospel with him so that he can hear the good news, the gospel, repent and believe the good news and become a Christian. I think it's uh, teaching us that even if God chooses to use a dream or a vision, to nudge someone towards faith in Christ, the word of God is still needed. Gospel proclamation is still needed, usually through someone communicating it, so so that that person can actually know and believe the truth of the gospel. But God doesn't always speak through dreams and visions. In fact, more times than not, he uses other things to nudge us, to draw us towards salvation. He uses curiosity. He uses questions about worldview, questions about death and the afterlife. To nudge people towards faith in Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you're hungering to know more about Jesus. Or if you find yourself wrestling with some of life's hardest questions. What happens after death? What happens when we when we die? Realize that that's probably Jesus drawing you to himself. These questions that you're wrestling with are meant to be answered. And we find the answer to them in the gospel. And that's what happens with Cornelius. He has this vision. But in itself it's not enough for salvation. He has to hear the gospel proclaimed to him. And so that's not the only vision, though, in our text this morning. Watch how how God works. This is incredible. The sovereignty of God, the goodness of God. While Cornelius is receiving a vision wherein he's told to go and find Peter, Peter is receiving a vision so that when Cornelius finds him, the prejudice in his own heart is not in the way of a gospel conversation. That's how good our God is and how he works. Look at verse 9. We see Peter's vision. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that's, un- that's cl- uh, common or unclean. And the voice came again to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So there it is, church family. Uh, arise, kill, and eat. It's God's mandate for us to all be hunters, right? So, <laughs> wives... When your husband wants to spend multiple days a week in the deer stand or in the duck blind, he's actually doing something very biblical. Hey, that was the loudest thing we've gotten in a while. I'm kidding, but only kind of. Uh, Husbands, love your wives. And if you're spending multiple days in the woods, it could be an indicator you're not loving them well. Also, sweet little woodland creatures are fantastic and tasty to eat. But to the main point here, Peter has a vision And in it, he's told to eat all kinds of meat without concerning himself with whether they are ritually clean or unclean according to Jewish dietary laws. Now, Peter doesn't understand that, and he actually reacts to it because there's symbolism here. God's teaching him something more than just what to eat for your next meal, and he doesn't realize that, but he soon will. These unclean animals are God's way of telling Peter that he, God, has made clean the unclean Gentiles. The people that were considered unclean are being made clean by the gospel. He's showing Peter that the gospel means that there is therefore now no separation between uh, the the Jews and the other people that the gospel has gone to. And Peter rejects this instruction three times, the text says. You have to wonder, what is it with Peter and denying things three times, right? You would think he would have learned already. Uh, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then he denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows, and, uh, and you have to wonder, Peter's really hard-headed, right? takes three times with him. And, and those are the two visions we see. God's working in Cornelius. God's working in Peter at the same time for the same purpose. And that leads us to our third scene where we see obedience in both of these men as to the visions that they've just heard, uh, saw. Uh, in verse 17 through 33, we see their response to these visions. Let's, let's read this section together. It's a little bit lengthy, but, but bear with me uh, as we read. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guests. Significant. The next day he rose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called them together, called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, "Stand up, I too am a man, and as he talked to him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, "You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit one of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call." Any person, common or unclean. And so I was sent for. I came without objection. And I asked then why you sent me. And Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging at the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. And so I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, uh, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Let me offer a few observations here as to what's going on. Peter's sitting, and he's pondering this vision. Lord, what do you mean? What are you teaching me? What are you changing in my heart? And in that moment, Cornelius' men show up. That's not circumstantial. That's not coincidence. they stand outside by the gate. and The text is sure to note that for us because they're Gentiles. And they know how taboo it would have been for them to just walk in. The men explain their purpose. They explain the dream. They request for Peter to go with them. And he goes without hesitation. Look at verse 23. It says he actually invited them in to be his guests. That may seem like a small thing to us, but that's a huge deal in his day. And this conversion was taking place in Peter's heart. As we've already seen indicated, it started and it's continuing to be a thing that Peter's bearing in conviction. It's a huge gospel moment for us as prejudices are falling. When they arrive, they, they, they stay the night and they leave and they go to Caesarea. When they get to Caesarea, both Cornelius and Peter demonstrate huge humility here. Right, Cornelius, an elite uh, Roman official, bows before a Jewish fisherman. Incredible humility. Then Peter, the Jewish fisherman, instead of wallowing in that, which maybe all of us would be tempted to do, instead of letting his pride uh, get the best of him, he reminds Cornelius that they're both made in the image of God. They're both men, and there's no need to bow. They're both submitting to God and his commands. There's humility on both. And then Cornelius, in verse 33, invites Peter to come and share the gospel. Hey, we want to hear what God's laid on your heart. Brother, you don't have to ask me twice, right? He could, he could spend a lot of time uh, telling him what all has happened, but, but as we'll see in the next scene, he goes straight to the most important thing. Let me offer three quick uh, thoughts of application here. And really, you, I hope you're in a discipleship relationship through growth groups or Sunday school classes or D groups so that you can process this with another believer. You can talk through these things and make application uh, with more uh, specificity. But this morning, I want to offer maybe three thoughts here that we see in this interaction between Peter and these men from Caesarea. Number one, verse 20, shows zero hesitation in making friends with people unlike you. Shows zero hesitation in making friends with people unlike you. Peter was commanded, don't hesitate. Look at verse 20. Don't hesitate. And we shouldn't either. And we shouldn't either. That hesitation shows there's something in our hearts that's not right. Second thing, verse 23, Show hospitality to everyone. Open your homes, open your lives, better yet, to people that are not like you. Let me ask you a question How diverse is your dinner table? When was the last time that somebody sat and had dinner at your table that didn't profess Christ? They were not a Christian, or were adamantly opposed to Christianity, or of a different skin tone? How diverse are our dinner tables? Because it's probably a reflection of how diverse our lives are, which could be a reflection of our hearts. So open up and be hospitable to anyone and everyone. Three, verse 26, be humble before all people. Be humble before all people, regardless of skin tone or economic status or job status or religious backgrounds. We are no better than anyone else. We've just been bought by the blood of Jesus. Be humble. We need that reminder daily. If that makes you uncomfortable to hear those things... If that doesn't sit well with you, then it may be possible that you need a conversion in your heart and mind like Peter had. Maybe you're already a Christian like Peter, but your thinking needs to shift. That's certainly what's going on with an apostle. If it happened for Peter, it certainly needs to probably happen in our hearts. The, second, the fourth scene that we see here, i just say he preaches. We see him preaching. And he doesn't miss the opportunity to share the good news. That's what he'd been called to do. That's what he'd given his life to do, as we have been as well. Look at verse 34. And so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. That theme keeps coming up for him. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As, uh, as for the word that you sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, uh, beginning from, from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging, hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and, uh, and made him appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people. And to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Look at where he starts this sermon. It's the very lesson that he just learned. Verse 34, God shows no partiality. Does this ever happened to you that you discover some truth? You, God's taught you something. You're learning something in your walk with Christ. And you just can't wait to tell somebody else about it. You can't wait to share that information that you just learned with someone else. That's Peter here. That's Peter. He's going to get to the gospel and he's going to get there real quick. But he, he starts out there's no partiality here. I know I'm a Jew. You're a Gentile. And, 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 and 10 years ago, this wouldn't have happened. But God shows no partiality here. And then he proclaims God's plan of salvation for every nation, verse 35, that it's for every nation. We seem to need to make something clear here, too, with verse 35. It's not our main focus, but I want to just maybe help us and see that uh, it's possible to read verse 35, and some have, and, and determine from that, that that salvation is based upon works, right? If you do what is right, you'll be acceptable to him. And in doing that, you're missing the forest for the trees, Verse 35, read it with me again. I'll show you what I mean. Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, you could look at that and go, how are we acceptable to him? Well, by doing what is right. But what is right? (laughs) What is right? The point is that regardless of nation, regardless of background, God shows no partiality. So whoever does what is right, that's the point, God will show mercy. But then he spends the next five verses explaining the gospel. And so obviously doing what is right... It ends up at verse 43 where he makes abundantly clear that it's not works, but it's belief upon him who's died in your place and was raised from the dead that forgiveness is received. So it's not doing, it's believing. And that is what is right. And so if you want to know how to share the gospel with someone, if if that causes anxiety in your heart, I don't know where to start. I don't know even where I'd begin telling my neighbor about Jesus. How do I even have that conversation? Well, look how Peter does it. He gives us a pretty good guide to follow. Uh, well, first, he says Jesus is Lord of all, verses thirty-four and thirty-five. That's a good place to start. That He's created everything. He's made everything that is, everything that you see. He made it, and He made it perfect, and He made it good. But it's obviously didn't it that way anymore today. We've broken something. There's sin in this world. It's a fallen world. We're all sinful people. So he continues the second thing. Jesus, the Lord of all, died under the curse of sin that others deserved. We deserved to die under the curse of sin. And yet Jesus, verse 39, did that for us. Third thing, Jesus was raised from death. He was raised from the dead to show that he is God and that God the Father had accepted his sacrifice for sin. Verse 40. His sacrifice had been accepted on our behalf. Good place to go. Fourth, Jesus will judge everyone on that final day. Verse 42. Verse 42. Jesus is judge of everyone. And we'll all give an answer. It's a good place to go. It's a hard truth to tell someone in a gospel conversation. In a, in a conversation we're sharing the gospel with someone. But it's the reality. And we don't back away from it. That there will be a day. There's a day coming when every person will give an answer. They will give an answer before the judge. And that's Christ. And every knee will bow fifth thing that that Peter does here. He's saying that all of this is in accordance with the scriptures. That from the beginning it was promised that this would be the case for all peoples. Every nation uh, could be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. That's verse 43. It's a good place too. That the Bible teaches us this. The Bible told us that this would be the case and we see it coming true. That's an incredible thing to talk through with someone as you're sharing the gospel with them. That we can trust the word of God. That's how we can know Christ. And oh, that we would seize opportunities like Peter. Jump on them without hesitation and share the the, the greatest news in all the world. The only news, the gospel, whereby one can pass from death to life. That we'd be so captivated by the gospel that it would be natural for us to speak it in clear and articulate ways like Peter does here. If you don't know how, that's where to start. Fifth scene that we see is confirmation of all that's been taking place here. Fifth scene is the confirmation that takes place. Look at verse 44. And they asked him to remain for some days. Luke gives us the response to Peter's sermon. They believed. They believed the good news. And it was essentially a Gentile Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell upon them like he did in, in Samaria, like he did in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit is verifying that everything that happened here was him coming to Gentile people. People who were far off. And the Spirit's cracking open a new chapter in salvation history. The spread of the gospel to the entire earth. And these new believers are then baptized. You're going to probably start to think that I sound like a broken record. But it keeps showing up in the text. And so I'm going to keep pointing it out in the text. Because the reality is there's probably somebody that's been here week after week. And you hear me talking about baptism. And you're just still being disobedient. And so the Lord is kind and gracious to put it in our text again for you to hear today. That baptism is important. It's the way in which we identify with Christ that we have been saved, born again, by his death and resurrection. And we, for the rest of our lives, by the Spirit's help, are going to follow him. That's what baptism is. And so so some of you need to do that. You need to do that. You need to move forward in obedience with baptism. The, The ordinance of baptism and the gift of the Holy Spirit here, the Holy Spirit indwelling these folks, are a picture for us, for the entire church, for the rest of history. It's a clear picture that this gulf between the Jews, who were his people, and the Gentiles, who are now his people, that gulf has been, um, has been taken away. There is no gap now that, that, that anyone and everyone has been welcomed into the family of God. You know why that's good? Because we were those Gentiles. We were those people who were far away, that there was a gulf between. And, and the gospel has come to us. Praise be to God. Sixth and final scene here. We see some testimonies take place. We see some teaching take place. Uh, Let's continue reading. We're now jumping over into chapter 11 that you've already heard, read for you, most of which. And so read with me in verse 1. Now the apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? God does something incredible here. In the lives of, of these people, by saving them, but also in the, in the church that the gospel is going to the entire world, but instead of rejoicing, they're complaining and grumbling. I can't imagine the thought. And it shows that they needed to undergo the same conversion that Peter just went through. Their hearts and minds needed to shift as well. So what does Peter do? Uh, do does he blow up and condemn them? Does he, does he leave them? Does he call them names? Does he, does he start a new church where people get it? Does he call them immature and, and throw in the towel? No, he starts a discipleship process with them. He teaches them. Look at verse 4. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Meaning he, he was patient. And in fact, the next 14 verses are just that. They're Peter recapping exactly what happened. With patience and diligence, he's, he's telling them the story in order. He walks them through the same process of sanctification that God had him on. Oh, the kindness, the graciousness of Peter to do so with these believers who were, who were being cranky and rude, and sinful. Verse sixteen. I'm gonna, I'm i I'm gonna forego the, the the retelling of his events because you've heard it read already. Verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gives to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? What a weighty question. And what a weighty implication that for us to have those kinds of prejudice or discrimination in our heart, it could be that we're standing in the very way of God. His burden, the burden of rule following had been lifted. His life mission has been changed. It's now preach the gospel and you don't have to confine yourself to Jews. It's for everyone. And that clear mission was was on his heart. And he wanted the same joy for these other believers. He wanted the same joy uh, for these men and women that, that didn't yet understand that. And so he teaches them. He brings them along by sharing his journey with them. And look at the outcome. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That doesn't mean everybody got it. But it means that they left and there was an agreement that the majority praised God for saving uh, the Gentiles for this, this act of salvation that has spread now to the entire world. And the point here is that the gospels for every nation... And God needed to convert Peter's heart to understand that. He needed to change his cultural bias. He needed to change his attitude. And he did that, and Cornelius was converted, was saved, and it paved the way for other Gentiles of whom we're a part of. And then as, 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 as he sends Peter back, he teaches believers the same truth he learned. And we're reading it this morning, and I pray by the Spirit of God, learning it as well in our hearts that if there's any room for discrimination or cultural bias or racism, any of that in our heart, it has to go because it's a barrier to the spread and the proclamation of the gospel. God forbid that that would linger in our hearts. Now, we've covered a lot of Scripture today, and so let me conclude quickly with four exhortations based on this text. Four exhortations based on this text that I think would be for us as a church in 2019. Number one, Jesus has power over disease and death, so nothing you have is too big for him. Any power that we have in this life is from the source who is Jesus. And so if you're walking through sickness, if you're walking through grief or pain, look to Christ. If you have an unsaved family member that you've been praying for and they're dead in their sin, look to Christ because he's the one who can raise the dead. And Christ is the one who's powerful over disease and death. Nothing you have is too big. Second exhortation from this text. Jesus welcomes all people with hospitality. So if you are his, then you should be too. And Jesus welcomes all people with hospitality, so if you are his, you should be too. This text gives us a beautiful picture of gospel hospitality, extending love to outsiders. Would you pray this week that God would give you opportunities to care for a Cornelius this week? Would you pray that? God, help me to care for a Cornelius this week. And you may say, well, Matt, it's it's not just me. It's a two-way street. They don't want anything to do with me either. That's not an excuse. That's not an excuse. Do you see Peter in the text looking for Cornelius? He had no thought of Cornelius. He had no desire to go and find Cornelius. But when the word of God came to him, he heard the word and he was obedient. You've heard God's word this morning. Will you be obedient? Will you put that excuse away and say, God, I'm not going to let this be an excuse anymore. I'm going to go to whoever you send me. I'm going to go to anyone who will listen. I'm going to show hospitality and love to someone who's not like me this week. I dare you to pray that prayer this week. God, would you give me boldness to step out and do something that's so uncomfortable for me? Help me to love somebody that's not like me. Watch what God will do. Third exhortation from this text. Jesus desires that we would open our mouths and share with everyone. So let's do it. And Peter gives us a good model here for what it should look like when we're presented with an opportunity. We first open our mouths. The text is clear to tell us that. And we tell people the only news that will save their soul. And if you don't know how to do that, as I've already mentioned, go back to verses 34 through 43. See how Peter does it and emulate it. The gospel is powerful. Let's not be ones who would keep it to ourselves. And then the fourth exhortation here. Jesus has made us a family. And so bear with those that may not be in the same place that you're in. Jesus has made us a family, so bear with those that may not be in the same place that you're in. You remember uh, the, the No Child Left Behind Act? It was an act that was passed under George W. in 2001. Well, Regardless of your thoughts on that political decision, you know, that philosophy, um, it should characterize us as the church. No believer left behind. No follower of Jesus left behind. That we wouldn't just wipe our hands and say, I'm done. I'm done with you, with your immaturity, with your silliness. I I don't have tolerance for it. It would have been easy for Peter to get back to Jerusalem and met that confrontation with brothers that just didn't get it, that were angry and upset because Gentiles believed upon Christ. It would have been easy for him just to get back and been like, you know what, you guys don't get it. I'm going to plant a church over here. You guys can have it. That's not what he does. He doesn't start blasting them over their immaturity or their weakness in the faith. Instead, he patiently and lovingly draws them along, brings them on the same journey that he had just been on. The process of sanctification that God had been teaching him, he wants to impart and give to these other believers. Let me ask you this morning, church, does that characterize us? Does that look like your life? Who are you walking beside right now desiring that they would be formed in the image of Christ? Is there someone you could say, this person is who I'm pouring my life into because I want to see them mature in the faith. I pray it would be. I pray it would characterize us at Poplar Spring. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you this morning that with Cornelius we see the gospel coming to us. That we were the far off ones. We were the ones that the other disciples in Jerusalem would have been mad about coming to know you. And yet the gospel came. And you've made us sons and daughters. And so, God, we rejoice and we say thank you for salvation in Christ. Help us to hear a text like this and not just pass over as if it doesn't affect us or as if we don't have this struggle or problem. Help each one of us to see where there are places in our hearts where we may be harboring prejudice or racism or cultural bias or convictions politically that are so strong that we would malign a whole group of people. Help us to see every person on this planet as made in the image of Christ, in the image of God and and in need of salvation. Help us to be your ambassadors this week. I pray for myself, even in this moment, and for the people in this room, that you would give us clear opportunities to love on Cornelius's this week. People that are not like us, people that are different, people maybe maybe that are even difficult, are hard to be around, are frustrating. God, give us opportunities this week by your grace to love them with the love of Christ. We give you this time and pray you would work in each and every heart. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.